Good morning, New Hope family. Glad that you're here today. Very glad if you're joining us online. Maybe you're in your car or at work or at home right now. Very glad that we're all be able to be together. We're going to jump into the E2E study in just a minute. I want to pray with you for Dan and Hannah Knox, as you just heard from them. They're on site in the mission field right now, so we want to lift them up before the Father. And if you happen to feel like uh, worship was a little short this morning, that's my fault. Um, it was a long service in the last one, and in order to compress it a little bit, we dropped a couple worship songs. So you are in store for chapters 4 through chapters 10 this morning of Exodus. So we're going to compress it greatly, and I just want you to know what you're in store for so you understand where God's going with this particular section as the plagues are going to arrive in the land of Egypt. Let's pray together for Dan and Hannah and for what God's about to teach us, and then we'll jump in. Would you join me? Lord God, I do thank you for every single soul that is present in this place right now. I do pray, pray for your hand of blessing on us, for taking this time to study your word. And I also ask for those who are joining us right now through the broadcast, God, that you would speak in the same way to every individual who's watching from a distant location, that you would use the power of the Holy Spirit to speak into our lives and to teach us so that we would be well equipped to go into this week and speak into the lives of our friends. Right now, we want to lift up Dan and Hannah to you, God, asking that you would put your blessing on the work that they're doing and bring out great fruit from the efforts that they put forth. We pray for your protection over them for safety, and we ask for your blessing for finances, and especially, God, that your word would go forth with power from them. We ask that for ourselves, that your word would come alive to us, and that will happen through the work of the Holy Spirit, so we invite that, Father, right now. And we ask for that in Jesus' matchless name, and all God's people said, amen. amen. I want you to see, especially this morning, how grace and mercy comes leaping off the pages as you look at the Exodus and the plagues. And perhaps, especially if you're familiar with the story, you've never seen that before. You've never seen any grace or any mercy going on there. Well, let's start with a kind of a broad overview with where we left off. If you weren't here last week, let me catch you up on this. We've got Moses being instructed by God to go before Pharaoh. Look with me on the screen at Exodus chapter 4 and verse 21. The Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Let's just pause there for a second. Jody's going to leave that verse on the screen for just a moment. That statement leaves us with a lot of questions. Like, what's going on with God hardening somebody's heart? Why would he do that? And we know that Pharaoh is also very, very evil. And the way that he's been torturing people isn't the kind of thing you want to go on longer. So why does God allow an evil person to continue in power? And why is he going to harden his heart to extend it out? Well, that's what we're going to address this morning. But pick it up with me again in verse 22. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn, is my son my firstborn. So I said to you, let my son go that he may serve me. So you understand context. Pharaoh, at this period of time in the Middle Kingdom, is regarded as a living God. So they see him as the son of the God, so they call him a living God. But we've just seen that the one true God, the God of the Bible, actually says, whoa, wait, slaves are my children. The ones that I recognize as belonging to me, those slaves, they're mine, which is absolutely shocking. That this person of royalty would hear that God sees these slaves as belonging to him. 
But that's a reflection, if you study the Bible, you understand that's a reflection of the, the promise that God made to Abraham, saying that all your children, all your offspring, Abraham, everybody who's in your line because of faith in me, they're going to be seen as my children. You believers this morning, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, did you know that you're seen as the firstborn of God? That's what we're actually told in Scripture, Hebrews chapter 12. It says it very specifically this way, the church, the church of the firstborn, meaning you've got all the rights, all the privileges, all the inheritance waiting for you because you're enrolled in heaven. God sees you as destined for that place. Now, that doesn't really have anything to do with what we're talking about this morning. That was just for free. I'm throwing that in just so you understand and you're reminded who you are. Let's jump back in. Here's this broad overview. God sends Moses back to Egypt, and he does what he's being told to do, Exodus 5, verse 1. And afterward, Moses and Aaron came and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go, that they may celebrate a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and besides, I will not let Israel go. Now, we're going to do something fun this morning. I did it in the 9 o'clock service as well. I'm going to give you a chance to respond to the question that Pharaoh just asked. Pharaoh just asked this question, who is the Lord that I should obey him? Well, you're going to get a chance to respond this way. His name is Yahweh. That's what he said about himself. If you're new to the Bible, when God stood on the mountain, he spoke to Moses and he said this very confusing title, I am that I am. The interpretation for that is the Hebrew word Yahweh. So we're going to practice right now. I'm going to ask you the question. You can respond with Yahweh. Who is this Lord that I should obey Him? Yahweh. Very good. Excellent. Well done. I was going to compare you to the 9 o'clock, but I don't need to do that. Super well done. Okay, so here's the problem. Pharaoh's refusal to acknowledge that one and to repent, it's going to result in devastation. God's going to bring judgment, and there's going to be this really painful action against Egypt because of the disobedience to God. And ultimately, you're going to see it culminating in an action against all the firstborn of Egypt. But before we get to that, there's a lot that happens in between. You're going to see God do things that have never been recorded before in the Bible until you get to this point in such a concentrated manner. Let me remind you what he said he was going to do. Look with me on the screen, Exodus 3.20. I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my miracles, which I shall do in the midst of it. And after that, he, Pharaoh, he will let you go. Now, we know, if you're a student of the Bible, we know that God does things for a purpose. There's nothing that's done by accident. Well, his purpose in this case is to give evidence of who this God is. He's responding to Pharaoh's question because Pharaoh laid down the gauntlet. So here's the question for you, church, from verse 2. Pharaoh said, who is this Lord that I should obey his voice? How would you respond? Yahweh. Okay, Yahweh's the one that we understand. Well, in Scripture, we see that God often uses signs and wonders to demonstrate exactly who he is, that he is Lord. Jesus did this very same thing when he was walking the earth. Individuals wanted to know how they could know that he was who he said he was. John the Baptist, just a few days before he's going to be beheaded by Herod, he's in prison and he sends his disciples off to Jesus to ask the question, can I really know for sure that you're the one? Because I'm about to die. Well, Jesus responds this way, look with me in Matthew eleven four. Jesus answered and said to them, go report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up. 
And Jesus says, you want validation? You want proof? The, the proof is in the mighty miracles that I've done. And sometimes God uses miracles to validate, but He also uses judgment to validate in order to accomplish His purposes. And many times they're blended together. God doesn't use judgment because He enjoys inflicting terror or inflicting pain, but rather it's to shape stubborn hearts so they understand who He is. So for Pharaoh and this nation of Egypt, it's going to take an outpouring of wrath so that they will understand to convince them that He's not just Lord over the people of Israel. He's not just Lord over the people of Egypt. He's Lord over the people of the entire planet Earth. Now, at this period of time in the Middle Kingdom, Egypt is an extremely strong nation. They are powerful economically. They're very educated individuals. They've got a great military, and they are really wealthy, which has produced a really arrogant group of people. God is about to cripple a nation not because they're wealthy and not because they're well-educated, but He's going to cripple them because they reject Him. And so He's going to cripple them economically, and He's going to cripple them politically and socially and religiously. Now, we would say knocking off an entire nation, one as powerful as Egypt, is no small task. Let me put an image for you on the screen because this is what most people think of when they think of Egypt. They, they think of the pyramids. And when we look at the pyramids, we think of power. We think of intelligence. We think of strength. We think of endurance. Those things have been there for thousands of years. But that's not what the ancient Egyptians thought of. The pyramids actually stood as a religious symbol because everything in Egypt at this period of time is about religion. Everything is about worship. They worshiped, but they worshiped the wrong thing. They still worship because religion absolutely dominates their nation. So at this time in Egypt, there's no such thing as the separation of church and state. Everything is about worshiping what they think they're supposed to worship. So if you're going to understand the book of Exodus, you need to understand that everything in Egypt is linked to one of their many gods, and they have a very sophisticated system of deities. So when God takes down Egypt, He's actually taking down the gods of Egypt. Now, we've seen Moses and Aaron, they've shown up in the palace and they're making the request, they want to go three days into the wilderness. Pick it up with me, Exodus 5.3, please let us go a three-day journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, verse 4. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you draw the people away from their work? Get back to your labors. Again, Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are now many, and you would have them cease from their labors? So the same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters over the people and their foremen, saying, you are no longer to give the people straw to make bricks as previously. Let them go and gather straw for themselves, but the quota of bricks which they were making previously, you shall impose on them. You are not to reduce any of it because they are lazy. And between verses 8 and 20, you find the wrath of Egypt poured out upon the Israelites and they begin beating them more severely and they go through great trauma. And after struggling to fulfill the quota, they finally call out to Moses, what did you do to us? Well, some of the elders, the leaders of the tribes of Israel, they catch Moses outside, and this is what they say to him, verse 20. They met Moses and Aaron as they were waiting for them. They said to them, may the Lord look upon you and judge you, for you have made us odious in Pharaoh's sight. And unfortunately, Moses does what many of us do. He begins blaming God for his failure 
to follow God's directives. Look with me, verse 22. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you brought harm to this people? Why did you ever send me? Ever since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done harm to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Moses is inexperienced. He's actually very immature in his walk with God. He only very recently met God and began this walk with God, so he's a bit short-sighted. So we're going to give him a pass for that. But what I wanted you to note was what's missing. The very first visit to Pharaoh, and he didn't actually perform any of the signs. God said, when you show up before Pharaoh, you will perform these signs. God gave him the tools, and he doesn't perform them. And God specifically told him to take the elders of Egypt or Israel into the meeting of Pharaoh with him, and he didn't do that. But then there's this. He also repeats a behavior that we saw last week. And many of us fall into this. We, we understand. Moses doesn't actually believe God's Word. How do I know that? Because God had said to him only a chapter before, He's not going to let you go, Moses, except something happens. Exodus 3, verse 9, remember that? I know that the king of Egypt will not permit you to go except under compulsion. Well, in chapter 6, what you find is God's going to use the events of the next five chapters to refocus Moses all the time while God's going to be demonstrating what compulsion actually looks like. So verse 1, chapter 6, then the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for under compulsion he will let them go, and under compulsion he will drive them out of his land. This particular word is in your notes this morning, you'll see it on the screen, a Hebrew word, kazak. And it means, I'll just demonstrate it this way, to fasten onto something. So like my hands fastening onto my leg. Except according to the definition, it's done in a really conquering way. It's done in a really hot way according to the definition. I think all of us would agree that the last thing that we would want was for God to have to fasten onto us in some form of a hot, conquering manner. But because of refusing God's commands, God clarifies that's exactly what's going to have to happen. Chapter 7, verse 3, I will harden Pharaoh's heart that I may multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. Now, there's three different words in the Hebrew language that describe a hardening of the heart, and all three of them lead to eventually the same thing. It's talking about an obstinate person who is so stubborn they will actually refuse anything even when they see evidence in front of them. And the words that's used there is actually rigid, but it's speaking of a rigid insensibility. I want to explain what I mean by that. No one doubts that Pharaoh is stubborn. You know the story at all, even if you've only ever seen the movies. It seems like it's absolutely impossible to change his pattern of thought. Well, we need to understand the context of the thinking of these individuals. For the Hebrew people in the ancient world, they had this understanding that this is not referring to emotion, but rather it's referring to intellect. This individual is refusing new thinking. So the softening of the heart that God is speaking about that He needs, that He really should be demonstrating, this softening of the heart actually is talking about a reversal of Egyptian belief, a changing of the mind, in other words, accepting new thoughts for this reason. The Egyptians believed that when a person died, when they went to what they would consider eternity, that their heart or their soul entered into this place called the Hall of Judgment. 
And if their heart was found heavy with sin, then they would be judged and they would face eternity without what they considered a good eternity. So if someone's heart was heavy with sin, that person was judged. And we get that. So far, so good. Okay, that kind of matches the Bible. They're going to be judged. If they die, they've got sin on them. So for the Egyptian world, what they would do is they would place a stone beetle or a scarab. Perhaps you've seen it in archaeology before. They take a stone, carve a beetle into it. They call it a scarab. And then they would place it over the dead person's chest so that that heavy weight, that stone would be pushing down on their heart to keep them from confessing any sins when they got to the hall of judgment. That thought was that person won't confess any sin, they might have the tendency to do it, then they're not going to be subjected to judgment. So in an Egyptian ruler's mind, if they're admitting to wrong, then they're in danger, and that means judgment. And that individual has to remain silent because silence results in salvation, which is exactly the opposite of what the Bible teaches us. The Bible says if you would confess your sins, humble yourself before God, then God will be faithful and just to forgive you of your sins. But in their mindset, no, you can't do that because you're going to be condemned if you get judged that way. Well, take that framework of thinking and transfer it over to this hardening of the heart. There's 10 times when we're told there's a hardening of the heart, but what I want you to be very quick to see is that the first five are all about Pharaoh hardening his own heart. It says, Pharaoh hardened his heart, 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 and then it's in the sixth one that it says, then God hardened his heart because he had pushed and pushed and pushed and rejected so long. So it's very significant that you understand that Pharaoh is the cause of the first five plagues, and God gives him opportunity over and over and over to repent, and it is absolutely rejected. God demonstrates mercy because he gives warnings, and he says, if you do this, then I won't do this. But that's what's exactly rejected, and it's not until the sixth plague that God actually steps in. Now go with me to Exodus 7, verse 4. When Pharaoh does not listen to you, then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring out my host, my people, the sons of Israel, from the land of Egypt by great judgments. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the sons of Israel from their midst. Verse 8, now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, when Pharaoh speaks to you, saying, work a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. When he says, work a miracle, he means prove that you are from this Yahweh that I don't actually know. Verse 10, so Moses and Aaron came to Pharaoh, and thus they did, just as the Lord had commanded. And Aaron threw his staff down before Pharaoh and his servants and it became a serpent. Verse 11, then Pharaoh also called for the wise men and the sorcerers, and they also the magicians of Egypt, and did the same with their secret arts. For each one threw down his staff, and they turned into serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Yet Pharaoh's heart was hardened. There's the first one. Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. Think of it the way I've just described it. Intellectually, he's looking at what he's seeing before him, but he can't get beyond that mindset, and he's hardened his heart. And he's asked this question that I've asked you a moment ago, who is this God that I should obey him? Yahweh. Yahweh. 
Moses is saying, here's who he is. You need to acknowledge this. Now, last week, we saw the symbol of Egypt's strength was found in the cobra. I told you to look at the crown that the pharaohs wore, and you'd see right in the middle of the crown this cobra symbol. And this cobra, Nekbet, the responsibility of it was to protect the life of the pharaoh and to watch out for his harm. So if the symbol of Egypt's strength is actually snakes, we would say it's fair to say that these folks probably managed in, majored in snake management in school. They knew a lot about snakes, and they throw their staffs down, and their staffs also turn into snakes, which logically in 2023 you would say, okay, what's going on here? How did they do this? How did they imitate a miracle, first of all? Now, some people have arrived at the conclusion that that's just an illusion. Okay, well, it's very difficult for one snake to eat another illusion. Okay, so probably not going to lean into that one. Uh, another group of individuals that would say, well, they're snake charmers. And so they obviously trained their snakes to be rigid and to look very stiff. Okay, possibly, maybe, I don't know. I, I kind of question that one, but we'll allow that. But there's a third category that's much more understandable, especially if you understand the spirit world. There's two categories that are found in the Bible of individuals that practice what we would call the arts of magic. The one group we're familiar with because of the Christmas story and the Magi show up in Bethlehem. They're called the Magian. And those individuals are actually counselors and they study the stars and they predict what's coming and they follow astrology and astronomy. But then there's a second group and it's being referred to here in verse 11. The second group are the sorcerers, the Mexipim. And these individuals, they are practicing the occult or what's known as black magic. So when you get into verse 11, it says, they also, the magicians. What I'm referring to here is satanic action. So we have individuals who possibly are following after Satan. And Satan doesn't have the power to create, but Satan, according to the Bible, has the power to imitate. Scripture says he can appear as an angel of light. Well, with Pharaoh, they have a willing audience because Pharaoh, the last thing he wants is to have Moses pull off something that his guys can't pull off. So he's willing to believe, we'll give him that, whatever they do has convinced him enough to the point where he hardens his heart. That's not the biggest issue going on here of how they did it. The biggest issue is this. Do you notice that God has used something that's very, very familiar to this Pharaoh? Something that he understands. It's a gentle warning, not even a shot across the bow. There's no gunfire here. It's just a very gracious statement, starting out with the lesser and building to the bigger, saying, that thing that you worship, that thing that you think protects you, Pharaoh, that snake, I can devour that. So the first God is taken out, this God, Nekbet, and that demonstration sets the stage for God to display his saving power. Verse 14, then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is stubborn. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning and he's going out to the, as he's going out to the water and station yourself to meet him on the bank of the Nile and you shall take in your hand the staff that was turned into a serpent. Verse 17, thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will strike the water that is in the Nile with the staff that is in my hand and it will be turned to blood. The fish that are in the Nile will die and the Nile will become foul and the Egyptians will find difficulty in drinking water from the Nile. 
I've been around some of you long enough to know that some of you all have a morning ritual like Pharaoh. And your morning ritual is you've got to have your coffee as soon as your day gets started. And you're grumpy if you don't have your morning ritual of coffee. I know because it takes place in my own family. You've got to have your coffee, otherwise your ritual has not been fulfilled. Well, Pharaoh has a ritual, and it's a religious ritual. He has to go out to the Nile River every single morning, and he has to carry out this praise of the Nile River. Now, Pharaoh is standing in front of Moses, and he's heard these warnings that have just come from Moses. He says, all the waters, all the things that come and are connected with the Nile River, the the rivers, the streams, the pools, the reservoirs, they're going to turn to blood. All of them throughout the entire land, even the jars that are in your house, the vessels of wood and the vessels of stone, and it's going to kill all of the fish. Context, step back. The Nile River is absolutely strategic to the economy of Egypt. It is what you would consider their supply chain system. It's where everything comes from, all their irrigation, all their hunting, all of their fishing, all of their drinking water. It's crucial to their transportation system. And in June through August, the banks of the river, they overflow and they leave pools behind. And Moses is saying, even those pools are going to turn to blood. So verse 20. So Moses and Aaron did, even as the Lord had commanded, he lifted up the staff and struck the water that was in the Nile in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants. And all the water that was in the Nile was turned to blood. The fish that were in the Nile died, and the Nile became foul so that the Egyptians could not drink the water from the Nile, and the blood was throughout all of the land. And the story goes on to say that the sorcerers, they repeated that. They duplicated how they did it. I don't know. But verse 24 says, all the Egyptians had to begin digging in the earth, trying to find groundwater to drink. They were so dependent upon the Nile that they actually turned the Nile into a god, and they called that god Osiris. And Osiris was viewed as this god who controlled the Nile completely, and they called him the god of the underworld. And he was envisioned this way, that that the Nile River was like the bloodstream flowing through the veins of the arm of this god, Osiris. Well, how appropriate that God would turn that to blood as if Osiris is bleeding to death. But it's not just about Osiris. There's this god, Canum, who's the guardian of the Nile. And there's this god, Hopi, that you'll read about in your notes this week that Rich put together. And then there's this other god, Hamatet, which is the fish goddess. And all those gods are responsible for the life of the Nile River. Now, suddenly, they've got these crocs that are coming out of the river because the crocodiles can't be in the midst of the blood, and that brings its own level of danger to the people of Egypt. And Pharaoh is watching as everything in the Nile River is turned to blood. And you might want to step back and say, okay, literal blood? Is, Is that what's going on here? Well, the Bible says blood. It appears as blood, and it looks like blood, and it's felt like blood, and it killed everything. We understand from studying Egypt today, there's certain times of the year when this red silt flows down the Nile River, it moves its way towards the oceans, and it actually at the right angle you can see that it turns the river looking like it's red. And then in the book of Joel, in the book of Revelation, you see the Bible using descriptive language when it talks about blood moons in the sky. The moon didn't actually turn to blood, but it's got that coloring of it. So maybe it's an appearance of blood, I don't really know. Whatever it is, I know that it's a miraculous event. Why would I say that? Because God did it to everything 
all the tributaries, every pond, every pool, every bit of standing water, it's all blood, and that's not red silt flouting down the river because the fish die and the place stinks and they stop singing hymns to the Nile. Did you know they did that? Look with me at this phrase on the screen. This is their hymn to the Nile. O Nile, bringer of food, rich in provision, creator of all good, Lord of majesty, sweet fragrance. Real catchy tune, right? Except it's not sweet. It's no longer a sweet fragrance. It smells. So the second god of Egypt has are taken out, the second sets, and now Egyptians are digging every place to find water. And they're seven days into this before the water begins to clear up. And then we find in verse 1 of chapter 8, then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will smite your whole territory with frogs. Lovely. The Nile will swarm with frogs, which, you, which will come up and go into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and on your people and into your ovens and into your kneading bowls. So the frogs will come upon you and your people and all your servants. Verse 6, so Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. Every little boy's dream, right? <laughs> Every, every boy would love this. Now, frogs might be cute when you have one, okay? But when you have millions and millions of them, I love to hear them sing in the spring just like anybody else. I think it's beautiful music, but I don't want them in my bed. So can you imagine crawling into your bed with frogs? You get up in the morning to take a shower and squish, squish, squish across the floor and frogs, and they're every place under your feet. Why frogs? Because they had a frog goddess, and her name was Haket. And she's just, um, they, they made her into statues. You can see them today, and she's got this beautiful woman's body, but the face of a frog. Well, spectacular, right? Like, <laughs> who's going to worship that? Well, they, they did. And there was this death penalty for killing frogs intentionally. Like in India today with sacred cows, these frogs were protected. And if you stepped on them and killed them intentionally, you actually violated the gods. Well, before this is over, they're going to be squashing frogs all over the place. And we laugh because they're not in our bed. It's in these individuals' beds. And they're crawling through the beds and they're thick on the floor. And you turn on the shower and it's frogs. And you sit down to read the paper and it's frogs. Lori and I lived in Arizona for a couple years, and in the rainy season, um, there was an infestation of tarantulas. And, um, yep, they'd come up. We lived in the Sonora Desert, and they would come up from their holes in the desert, and they moved as a pack. And so you could be driving down I-10 down the highway, and you see this stream, what looked like a black carpet going across the road. And sure enough, you couldn't stop in time, and so you're running right through them, and cars were actually sliding when they hit them. There, there's that many of them. They go on a, a migratory movement. Well, it's kind of like this. These individuals, they're slipping on these crushed bodies, and they're all of a sudden in a mass of frog soup. And they're looking for a place to wash off, but they can't get to the rivers. So this third set of frog gods is taken out. Remember, church, this is about God causing man to recognize who he is. And there's mercy all over this because he didn't have to do this. You're going to see that in a moment. God's going to actually say that. Uh, watch 7 because the stupidity of this is amazing to me. Verse 7, the magicians did the same with their secret arts, making frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Why would you bring more? 
right? What about the power to take away the frogs? Well, Satan can imitate, but he cannot undo what God has done. God gave you salvation in Jesus Christ. Satan can't take that away. It's yours. God gave it to you. Satan can't undo that. He can imitate, but he cannot undo. We find in verse 8, then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, entreat the Lord that he remove the frogs from me and from my people. And I will let the people go that they may sacrifice to Yahweh, in this case, the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, the honor is yours to tell me, when shall I entreat for you and your servants and your people that the frogs be destroyed from you and your houses, that they may be left only in the Nile? And for the first time, you begin to see Pharaoh breaking. Now, go with me to verse 10. Then he said, tomorrow, which made me think, why not immediately? Mrs. Pharaoh's got to be saying, I want him gone now. I want him out of my house. But Moses is really clever in asking them for a time for this to happen. Finish it out. So he said, this is Moses, may it be according to your word that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs will depart from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They will be left only in the Nile. What's Moses just done? By causing him to choose the exact time and God matching the exact time, Pharaoh knows there's no way this is an accident. They came, they infested, and he chose tomorrow, and they're instantly gone. So he said, tomorrow. Now, you've just seen a classic human nature statement. The classic human nature statement is this. We all do this. We cry out to God when things are hard. And you see Pharaoh crying out to God when things are really hard. But it is also human nature to worship creation. Paul writes about that in Romans chapter 1. People do this throughout millennia. They have worshiped creation instead of the Creator. You see God here systematically wiping out the stupidity of worshiping creation instead of the Creator. Do we value our created environment? Absolutely. Are we stewards of it? Are we supposed to protect it? Absolutely. But we are not supposed to worship it. And God is moving against that mainstream of thought that they have. Drop down with me to verse 14. So they piled them up in heaps, and the land became foul. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and did not listen to them as the Lord had said. Who is this one that says I should obey him? What's his name, church? Yahweh. Pharaoh's getting it down, but he's hardening his heart. What's the larger purpose in bringing these judgments? To deliver? Yes, absolutely. To deal with evil? Absolutely, yes. But there's a third reason. You see it in Isaiah 45.5. It says this, I am the Lord and there is no other. Beside me there is no God. Let's go into verse 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth that it may become gnats throughout all the land of Egypt. They did so and Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats throughout the land of Egypt. The magicians tried with their secret arts to bring forth gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magicians said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. Now, gnats are bad enough, but most interpreters look at this in the ancient language and say, that's mosquitoes. That would be horrible. And then some go as far to say as, no, that's actually lice. 
I don't care which one of the three it is. It's horrible. Here's what I want you to visualize. Visualize this. The first layer on the surface of the earth being dust and dirt suddenly begins to rise and take flight around you. How cool to be a Hebrew living at this period of time because for the first time since the six days of creation, God has called dust into life and making the earth live in front of him. And it's at this point that the sorcerers have to bail. They have to say, we're out. They come up to Pharaoh scratching. I'm hurting. This is terrible. We can't do this. This is obviously the finger of God. And they've got these terribly instant, constant bites on them. And when they say, this is the finger of God, they're saying, we can't imitate this one because they can only imitate. They cannot create. But then come the flies, verse 20. Now the Lord said to Moses, rise early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh as he comes out to the water and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. For if you do not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and on your servants and on your people and into your houses and the houses of the Egyptians will be full of swarms of flies and also the ground on which they dwell. Verse 24, then Yahweh did so. And there came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and the house of his servants. And the land was laid waste because of the swarms of flies in all the land of Egypt. So flies everywhere, in your hair, in your ears, on your pets, on your floor. They're crunching underneath of your feet. And they've got this God, I, I probably pronounce it wrong, it's called Uwashit, U-W-A-S-H-I-T. I don't know if that's how it's pronounced or not, but this particular God is the God of the flies. And he manifests himself as a fly. So Egypt outlawed fly swatters because you couldn't kill the flies. It's illegal. In Hebrew, it's interpreted as Zebub, from which we get Beelzebub, from which we get the title Lord of the Flies. That's where the book came from. The King James Version records this as being extremely grievous to the point where it corrupted and defiled and ruined the entire land. The flies are so thick, there's no space between them. But watch what God does, verse 22. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people are living, so that no swarms of flies will be there, in order that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the land. And the entire purpose of the preferential treatment is to teach Pharaoh that the one true God is in the land doing all of these works, not some lame Egyptian deity. And what we find once again is this grace of God saying, if you don't repent, if you don't turn from your hard heart, I'm going to do this and I'm announcing it in advance. And he gave them plenty of time to repent if you go back and read the story. But because he doesn't, Pharaoh is singled out as the first victim. Now finally... Pharaoh seems to be ready to negotiate. Verse 25, Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, go sacrifice to your God within the land. Notice that, within the land. He's asking Moses to compromise on the thing that God had asked him to do. Verse 26, Moses said, it is not right to do so. Verse 27, we must go a three-day journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he commands us. Verse 28, Pharaoh said, I will let you go that you may sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. Only you shall not go very far away. Make supplication for me 
Then Moses said, Behold, I am going out from you, and I shall make supplication to the Lord that the swarm of the flies may depart from Pharaoh and from his servants and from his people tomorrow. Only do not let Pharaoh deal deceitfully again in not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Now Moses is leaving with this obvious rebuke. Do not mess around, Pharaoh. Don't repeat what you did last time. You're in a really poor bargaining position. Moses prays that the flies would stop, and in verse 31, we're told that not even one fly remained in the land of Egypt. So verse 32, but Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also, and he did not let the people go. And he's like a lot of people. He really came to the place where he only wants God to take away the consequences of his sin. But he doesn't want to deal with the real sin issue. He doesn't want to go to the source of what's wrong. He just wants the effect of what's wrong to go away. And once he gets the relief, he returns to his hard-nosed stance. So the God of the flies is taken out, and next is the death of the animals. Exodus 9, then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and speak to him. Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and continue to hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will come with a very severe pestilence on your livestock, which are in the field, on the horses, on the donkeys, on the camels, and on the herds, and on the flocks. Verse 4, but the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt so that nothing will die of all that belongs to the sons of Israel. Verse 5, all the livestock of Egypt died, but of the livestock of the sons of Israel, not one died. Verse 7, the heart of Pharaoh was hardened. Church, this is not natural phenomena as though some disease hit all of a sudden because natural phenomena cannot distinguish between who owns cows and who doesn't own cows. The previous plagues brought irritation and they brought pain and they brought discomfort, but this is the loss of personal property on a huge scale, and it devastates, devastates their food supply and their economy. But what we discover is they also worshiped cows, Hathor. More recently, in the last hundred years, sarcophaguses have been discovered nine foot by 12 foot in which they buried the cows that they worshiped. Well, Hathar, this god that they worship, was known as the goddess of love, and she appeared in the form of a cow. I know, no comment. Okay, coming into the very last part here, verse 8. This is the plague of boils. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take for yourself handfuls of soot from a kiln and let Moses throw it toward the sky in the sight of Pharaoh. It will become fine dust over all the land of Egypt and will become boils breaking out with sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So you got the god Sekhmet who is responsible for dealing with diseases. Well, he's out of a job. And then you've got the god Serapis and he's the god of healing and he's supposed to bring healing to the people when they get infections. And then you've got the god Imhotep who's the god of medicine they're supposed to deal with them once they arrive, and nothing is working because according to verse 11, everybody's got boils on them. Everybody's walking around with these festers, and then they can't walk, verse 11. The magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils were on the magicians as well as on all of the Egyptians. And the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Notice that, church. There's a change. He's crossed the line now, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not listen to them, just as the Lord had spoken to Moses. There it is. He's crossed the line, and there's no turning back. 
You push against God's control. We strain against the leash long enough. Push, push, push. Finally, God lets go. He says, okay, fine. You want to go? Go. Warning after warning after warning, and zero repentance has taken place. And from this point forward, it is relentless destruction. The next thing you see is hail falling from the sky and fire. It says this in Exodus 9, Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you and your servants and your people so that you, singular, it's written in the Hebrew, you, Pharaoh, personally, so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. And there's no turning back at this point. The only thing God gives is warning so that they can protect their own personal lives. Verse 15, this is key to the entire story. For if by now I had put forth my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, you would then have been cut off from the earth. But indeed, for this reason, I have allowed you to remain in order to show you my power and in order to proclaim my name throughout all the earth. In a big way, church, it's all about God's glory. In a big way of understanding the overarching principle, God wants his name known, but there's a reason why he wants it known. And he's going to unleash the full force of his wrath And he says to Pharaoh, I could easily sweep you off the earth. I did it with Noah. During that time, I wiped out the entire planet. But he deliberately and purposely spares them for a very important reason. Which brings us to that big question I asked at the beginning. Why does God allow evil to continue on our planet? Well, in the big overarching way that God's name would be proclaimed... How do I understand that? God says that my name would be proclaimed throughout the entire planet, and he's gonna do it by the means of Pharaoh's stupidity. But verse 15 is the key to why this is happening, because God says, I could have wiped you out by now, you would have been gone and nobody would have remembered. But what have we seen him do? In mercy and in grace, I want you to know me. I want you to know that I am Yahweh. I am the one true God. If you would just repent, but they're refusing it and refusing it and refusing it. But we know we have a God who's not willing that any would perish. That's what Scripture says, and he's being incredibly merciful to them. But they've crossed the line. Verse 18 says, Behold, about this time tomorrow I will send a very heavy hail, such as not been seen in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. And Moses writes about this all the way down to verse 35. It's really lengthy and we won't hit it. The hail comes and people die and quite literally people are crushed to death by the hailstones. And verse 23 says there's fire and hail coming at the same time, which is pretty amazing when you have fire and rain coming from the sky at the same time. But what you see is God is literally burning up the land with a devastation that is beyond comprehension. So that's one of the last gods to be dealt with. They have a sky goddess called Knut, K-N-U-T. And her responsibility was to make sure there was good weather for all the people of Egypt. And that's a pretty easy gig if you were the goddess of a blue sky area, because there's no place sunnier than Egypt. I lived in Arizona, I know, there's blue skies day after day when you're in the desert. So she's got this really easy job. It's the same all year long, but this god is out of a job also, and the god of Seth and the god Isis, who are responsible for crops. 
because the hail and the fire have destroyed everything. And here comes just about the last one. The plague of locusts, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may perform these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I made a mockery of the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them, that you may know that I am Yahweh. Who is this God, new hope? Yahweh is his name. Verse 3, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh, and they said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your territory and they shall cover the surface of the land so that no one will be able to see the land. They will also eat the rest of what has escaped, what is left to you from the hail. And they will eat every tree which sprouts for you out of the field. Then your houses shall be filled in the houses of your servants and the houses of your, all the Egyptians, something which neither you nor your fathers nor your grandfathers have ever seen. They're going to cover the surface of the earth so thick it will be like a black cloud and they're going to come out of your cabinets and fall onto your toothpaste. And if there's anything left after the hail fire, they're going to tear it up. And by the way, if you think the frogs and the mosquitoes were bad, it will be nothing compared to this. Just the thought of it, because of what they have seen, totally freaks out Pharaoh's advisors. And you find, verse 7, Pharaoh's servant said to him, How long will this man be a snare to us? Let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not realize that Egypt is destroyed? They've had enough. Stop already. I've become a student of World War II in trying to understand the decisions that were made by world leaders at that time. We're told that when Hitler was moving with Germans, Germany's forces against Russia, that he was so disappointed with the outcome of how things were going that he decided to make himself what we would call commander-in-chief, and he took over all military operations, and he made decisions about the military in the attack on Russia. His advisors kept coming to him saying, we can't do this, we're losing. And yet he was so hard-hearted, they could not speak sensibly to him. He needed a new frame of mind, and he couldn't get it because he wanted to kill the Jews so bad. First, they can't drink the water. Then they've got these crushing frogs all over the place with every single step. Then the gnats, then the flies, then the boils, then the dead animals. And now they're finding locusts are inside their tacos, and they're extra crunchy. Sorry, but I couldn't miss that one. <laughs> all the gods of the crops and all the gods of the land and all the gods of the water are utterly useless and they are out of a job because after the plagues, there's nothing left to protect. And here's the last one. God turns everything black. Verse 21. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, even a darkness which may be felt. Man, that sounds horrible. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky and there was a thick darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. They did not see one another nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the sons of Israel had light in their dwellings. With one of my sons, I went voluntarily into a coal mine in Virginia 
And we took one of those train rides that they give for tourists, and we went back in about a mile into the, into the mountain, and then they turned off the lights. I can't describe to you the oppressive darkness. It almost makes you want to curl up into a fetal position. If you've been there, you know what I'm talking about. You can actually feel it surrounding you. What is this about? Why the oppressive darkness? And, and as the second question to close this service out today, why the severity of all these plagues? I'll touch on that one in just a second to wrap this up. Let's come back to the oppressive darkness. When you think of Egypt, you think of who they worshiped and what they worshiped. As far as this plague of darkness is concerned, we know today from studying ancient Egypt and ancient civilizations that more than anything, the Egyptians worshiped the god sun, Ra. Ra was everything. Ra brought light. Ra brought life. Ra was the God, the most powerful God. The conquering power of the one true God to bring utter darkness in the midst of one of the sunniest places on planet Earth demonstrates without a question who's actually in charge. And it definitively, definitively answers Pharaoh's huge question that he threw down when he says, who is this God that I should obey him? Yahweh. I am that I am. I have no beginning. I have no end. I am the creator of everything. You've been worshiping the creation. How about worshiping the creator, Pharaoh? So at the height of Egypt's power, God brings devastation with astonishing display. But there's one more. Chapter 11, verse 1, Now the Lord said to Moses, One more plague I will bring on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will surely drive you out from here completely. But that's for next time. You know the story. Just, just like with Joseph, right? Okay. So here, here's the big question to end this with. Why the severity of all the plagues? when God already knew ultimately it was going to lead to the final plague, the death of the firstborn. Here at This Way Church, the primary characteristic of you this morning, as far as your relationship with God is concerned, the primary characteristic of those who belong to the Lord is this, you obey what He has revealed. God revealed salvation in Jesus Christ that he died for your sins and has taken them away and you're destined for eternity. You have obeyed what was revealed to you. Correspondingly, disobedience is what God reveals is actually the primary offense to him. In the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve chose disobedience against God, what they were actually demonstrating is that they did not believe God. They didn't believe God's word. They were denying that there would be consequences for going against what God said. Specifically, what they were denying is the doctrine of judgment. The first doctrine to be denied is the doctrine of judgment. It carries over to this present day in the world that we live in. People believing that there will be no judgment, no consequences. God's just going to let us all in. But that's denying the doctrine of judgment. You see it in Pharaoh's day. He was denying what was right in front of his eyes, saying, now, I don't believe that. And eventually he crossed the line where God said, okay, 
I'm going to let you go. Exodus speaks with unmistakable clarity to you and I as individuals. It speaks to the whole entire church. When we learn of God's actions as we do here, what we see of God's actions in the plagues is his love of obedience. Just respond to what I'm asking you to do. Obey what I'm showing you. Pharaoh is saying, who is this Yahweh that I should obey him? So you find his warnings for disobedience is this. You keep going that direction and judgment will be delivered because judgment is real. But triumphantly throughout our entire life and throughout the story of Exodus, everything that you're seeing, what you see is a God who's reaching out in mercy and in grace, warning them because he really, truly loves us. He's not willing that any would perish. That's what he says. 2 Peter 3.9, I'm not slow about my promise. I'm being patient toward you because I'm not wishing that any would perish, but that they would all come to repentance. So why does God allow evil to continue to exist in our world? Because he is incredibly patient. It blows our mind how patient he is. But there is a point when you can cross the line. Father, we come before you right now recognizing that we are all recipients of your patience, of your grace and your mercy. You offered us something beyond comprehension, a forgiveness of our sins. And I thank you that you used the Holy Spirit to move in our lives to cause us not to want to push our sins down like a stone heart over our chest, but rather that we confessed and you were willing to forgive. Thank you for the blood of Jesus who forgives us and restores us to relationship with you. I pray that you would send us out with your blessing on us, that we would speak authoritatively and confidently into the lives of people whom we know that need to hear this truth. Use us this week, God, and thank you for allowing us to be part of the revealing of your word this morning. And pray for these things in the matchless name of Jesus, our Savior, and all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.